Pastor Ed Taylor makes this observation. It's interesting how horrible our sins look when someone else is committing them. When I'm doing them, I can always give an excuse. I've always got a reason. I can always explain it away. Even if you don't accept my explanation, I can accept my own explanation. I have a rationale. But if you're doing it, oh, how could you? Shame on you. I can't believe you do that. How disappointing that is. And that's human nature. Let someone else do it. Man, I'm quick to judge them. I'm ready to sentence them to death. They ought to get wiped out for that. Our sins look horrible when someone else is committing them. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. And so it becomes necessary to know what to do after we sin. Today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor returns to the story of David and Bathsheba. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the scandalous story of adultery and murder cover-up. Nine months after the sin, David is confronted and then experiences what God's forgiveness is all about. It's a heartwarming story of love and grace. And we hope you can join us for it. Pastor Ed is in 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we find David, King David, in over his head with the consequences of his own sins, his own sinful actions. We started chapter 11 with David staying home when it was time for kings to go to war. And that lazy decision, while we don't know all the motives, but God wanted us to know it was normal and it was right and it was regular for kings to go to war, but not David chose not to do that. And what started for him as a quick look ended in a diabolical conspiracy, deceit, and ultimately murder, literally not murder of the heart, not murder in the mind. He was literally a part of the death of Bathsheba's husband, setting it all up as the king, the woman that he impregnated in an adulterous, sinful relationship. Remember, three places that sin will always take you. Number one, sin will always take you farther than you really want to go. Number two, sin will keep you longer than you really want to stay. And number three, sin will cost you more than you ever want to pay. And we think, how can a glance at a woman, or for you ladies, how can a glance at a man lead to such evil? Sin, plain and simple. The wages of sin always pays death. Always. And now as we turn to chapter 12, some nine months have passed. Nine months of hiding, maybe. Maybe thinking he'd gotten away with it. Breathing a big sigh of relief that nobody found out. And his plan worked. 
being able to somehow segregate that his plan involved murder. He killed a man, stole his wife. He literally stole another man's wife and then murdered her husband. Now, I haven't seen literally a man stealing another, uh, another man's wife and then literally killing him, but I can tell you this. I have personally seen with my own eyes a man steal another man's wife and then begin to kill him spiritually. It's a very sad thing to watch. It's a very diabolical sin. Maybe by the time between chapter 11, verse 27, and chapter 12, verse 1, perhaps in that blank of the space on the page, he was beginning to think it was behind him, ignoring it, segregating it, pretending it never happened. Now, it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me how people who are knowingly sinning, knowingly hurting someone, it's amazing to me how they can carry on their lives as if nothing happened. How they can look at the situation, whether it's simply pretending it never happened, or the grand delusion that they're innocent in the matter, it can be downright frustrating. Hey, I, asked, I asked you to open a second Samuel. Hold your places there. Go over to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. This may be the cry of your heart. It's a common cry, unfortunately. Whether it be a believer or an unbeliever. But it's amazing how people can just live like nothing ever happened. Like they're completely innocent. Even to the point of murdering someone. Oh, I didn't do that. In their own minds thinking that they got away with it. And so isn't the cry often in verse 14 of Psalm 35? He says, I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. And here's the key. Lord, how, will, how long will you look on? You ever felt that way? Lord, how long will you let them get away with this? How long before justice comes? How long, Lord? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. But I'll give thanks to you in the great congregation, and I'll praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them walk with the eye who hate me without a cause. How people seemingly are getting away with their sin. How they're able to continue in their gossip and continue in their slander and continue in their lies while afflicting more and more pain. In Psalm 74, verse 10, it says, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? You see, it's not just with you in the personal realm. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And David, while in one psalm he speaks of the adversity of his own life, in another psalm he recognizes, no, how long will they blaspheme your name? It's your name. It's the glory of your name through their lives, especially when they say they're believers or have seen fruit in their lives as believers, or quite for literally they are believers in rebellion against God. In Psalm 44, verse 22, it says, Yet for their, your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? 
Arise, don't cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Listen, friends, for those of you waiting on the Lord, if those phrases in the Psalms relate directly to you, how long, Lord? How long? Just wake up. See my situation, Lord. How long will you let the adversary blaspheme your name? If that's you in any way, you're waiting on the Lord in those, those cries of your heart. Here's my counsel to you. Continue to wait. Continue to wait. God's justice is coming. You wait for it by waiting on him. And in chapter 12, David, here it comes. Here it comes, David. About nine months later. In verse 1, chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. You might want to mark those words. The Lord sent. This time in David's life in chapter 12 is all orchestrated by God himself. God is fully in control. For nine months, for ten months, for a year, two years, three years, whatever time period elapsed between these two chapters, David has gotten away with nothing. Instead of God's immediate action on their life, on his life in particular, God has been graciously waiting for David to come to the conclusion that he already knows inside, where his spirit will bear witness with God's spirit. But he hasn't, hasn't happened. So God, what does he do? He intervenes on behalf of all those who were wronged, all of Uriah's family. Remember that name, Ahithophel? Don't forget him. Ahithophel, Bathsheba, all the, the whole extended family. God, this one verse is what has been waiting for. God sent Nathan to David. God sent Nathan. God sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his own bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Don't miss that God is in control here and he sent Nathan to David. And I'm thankful for the sending power of God, aren't you? You can give an amen to that. The sending power of God and the obedient men and women who carry God's message of truth in those, to those that are in blatant, unrepentant sin. God bless you for standing up for what is right. May God bless you for saying the hard thing. May God bless you for looking someone in the eye and saying, what you're doing is wrong. And if you don't have the boldness or the courage to do that, you need to pray for it. That's what a godly man or woman does. He tells the truth in love. Don't become complicit in someone else's sin. And I'm thankful for the sending power of God, and I'm also thankful for the Nathans. Can you imagine? I wonder if God revealed everything to Nathan all at once, or did he get it revealed as he was sharing the story? I don't know. I suspect he got it all at once. 
And everything was on the line to tell David the truth. His own life would be on the line. This time, God doesn't use the enemy as he has in the past in David's life. The lords of the Philistines, when David wanted to fight, with the, when, when the, the lead Philistine, the king, wanted to take David along and, and use him to fight against the nation of Israel, which would have been catastrophic for David, what happened? The lords of the Philistines says, we're not taking David. I'm not fighting with him. We don't want anything to do with him. There's no way. He'll turn on. And it was the enemies of God that saved David the first time, but not for this one. For this one, God doesn't send an enemy to David. He sends a friend, a close friend. The type of friend, as we've already seen with Nathan, that they would hang out. David hanging out with godly people. And when you hang out with godly people, you talk about godly things. And that's where that idea came up of building the temple. And David just wanted, I just want to bless God for all. Just stirring up love and grace. And and that's when God said, no, 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 David. You're not going to build a temple for me. I'm going to build an everlasting temple for you. Messiah is going to come through you. Everlasting generations are going to be blessed by you. And David's like, oh, man, God, you're so good. You're so good. Yeah, this is the same David, stuck in sin, unrepentant. I've often found that when God has a word of correction for us, it usually comes from someone who truly has a heart for us. It usually comes from someone that really loves us. What that tells me is, is that if we're surrounded with people that never tell us the truth, they don't really love us as God would have them to love us. It doesn't do us very good, that doesn't do us very well to be surrounded by people that see something in our lives or have a message from the Lord and won't tell us. They go, you know, nobody ever tells me anything, Pastor. And you might want to check the depth of those relationships because Nathan's a true friend. And there are times when he is enjoying talking about the things of the Lord, building a temple, and there are times when he has to come with a story, with a rebuke, a strong word. Nathan earlier carried that message of the glorious covenant and now he shares a story of this rich man who has everything that he's, it says that he's exceedingly rich and he rips off this poor guy, the only ewe lamb that he raised like his own daughter. It's one of the things I learned when I moved to Colorado is the seriousness of this relationship between people and their pets. It's pretty serious. And for many years, I didn't understand it. I just didn't understand it. I, I didn't grasp it. I appreciated it, uh, but I didn't grasp it. I mean, to some respect, some people will even call their, their dog, their cat or whatever. Cats, I don't understand at all. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, I didn't understand it until our Molly died. The little mud of a dog that was given to us when we sent out our first missionaries here in Calvary. Way back in the beginning, we sent our first missionaries out to Turkey And as they were serving in Turkey, they needed someone to take their dog, little Molly the Mutt, cute dog, just just something special. Didn't do a thing right. (laughs) Didn't retrieve a ball, didn't listen. I guess she listened a little bit, but she was just, and when when she died in in the arms of my son, Eddie, ah, we wept like babies over that dog. And we're just like, what are we doing? But I understand. I understand a little more the sweetness of the companionship of a pet. And here, there's the story. David gets it as well. This lamb was like his own daughter, ripped off from him. And notice David's response, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. 
And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The story infuriated David. He couldn't believe his ears. How could such a thing occur? He believed it to be a true story, not a parable. He believed it to describe something happening in his kingdom under his oversight. And it ticked him off. And he responds that the man deserves to die, but first must replay four lambs to the owner. Now, there is a partial correction. There is a partial biblical truth to that. Because you Bible students, you can look it up in Exodus chapter 22. There is a fourfold repayment. There is some truth to this. The death penalty, though, was neither God's word nor God's heart in the matter. God's heart was not to to exact the death penalty on someone that did such an atrocity to a lamb. And yes, David's sin is always before him. He was judging another person very harshly and very rashly. What often isn't shared in the scriptures is the reality of a person that lives with sin day by day. There's a disconnect from the fellowship with God. It's all fake. They could be in church, but when you're living in sin, it's just, it's just horrible for you. The Bible's convicting. You can't really tell people the truth. And when somebody asks you how you're doing, you lie. And then you think, why am I lying? And that, well, because I'm hiding this. And you, you just are miserable. You're conflicted. You live with it every day. You go to sleep with it. You wake up with it. It's so much so that, that you, the Bible says that you can sear your conscience to the point where you don't feel it anymore. And then you come to church and you're not even a person that feels emotion anymore. You don't even care about people anymore. You're, you're not the same person in sin. And you live with it and it stews and it simmers and, and, and it boils over. And at the first opportunity, this harsh, rash condemnation of yourself when all the while we can receive the forgiveness of sin. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, what? God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But instead, you take the path of hiding. You take the path of lying. You take the path of deceit. You take the path of lack of conscience. You're a pretender. You're a hypocrite. And, and that's not the, you, you know you didn't live that way your whole Christian life. You know that. You can remember better days. Even the church in Ephesus was told to return. You've left your first love. Go back. Repent and do the first works. How much more when you're in rank, rebellious sin and you know it? What a miserable life you live. Yes, with the smiles. Yes, with the Facebook posts. Yes, with the Instagram. Yeah, you're so happy, but inside, you're dead men's bones. You're miserable. You'll never have a peace with God until you deal with it. And oftentimes, while you're unwilling to deal with your own sin, we're very, very quick to deal with everyone else's because of an unforgiving heart or a lack of repentance. It's very easy to deal with other people's sin. That's really the, we tend to be the harshest with people who commit the same sin that we're presently struggling with. It's interesting how horrible our sins look when someone else is committing them. Let me repeat that for you note-takers. How horrible our sins look when someone else is committing them. When I'm doing them, I can always give an excuse. I've always got a reason. I can always explain it away. Even if you don't accept my explanation, I can accept my own explanation. 
I have a rationale. But if you're doing it, oh, how could you? Shame on you. I can't believe you do that. How disappointing that is. And that's human nature. Let someone else do it. Man, I'm quick to judge them. I'm ready to sentence them to death. They ought to get wiped out for that. Our sins look horrible when someone else is committing them. For you parents, you you watch little sinners run around your house all the time. (laughs) Carrying many of the same characteristics that you live with. Calling them out on it. Really quick to jump on them. and, And yet, where do you think they learned that from? They're little mirrors of ourselves that God has given to us, not only to disciple them, but God uses them to disciple us. We would do well to remember that. Our sins look horrible when someone else is committing them. But if I'm committing them, it's really not that bad. I tend to be more generous on myself, very gracious. (laughs) When When I look in the mirror, grace, grace to you. But for others, very critical. Especially when you view unbelievers as you that work in the world. You're so condemning of unbelievers. You're so critical. Like you're the perfect person and everyone else has a problem but you. When all the while you're just wrapped up in pride. You're just a prideful person. You're not as good as you think you are. The things you're seeing in them are reflections of you. And the things that really get to you are often things that you do but you explain away and pretend that they don't happen. We get a story like this and we rise up and kill that man. Well, not even the Bible says that he should be killed. You're listening to Abounding Grace, our Monday edition, as Pastor Ed Taylor is teaching us from 2 Samuel 12. It's a message we've titled, You Are That Man. Get the CD for just $2 by calling us today at 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryaurora.org. Ed, as we closed, you were making the point that our sin often looks far worse on another person than it does when we look in the mirror. What would you say to that person that's finding it difficult to forgive someone? They've been hurt deeply, perhaps by the words or actions of another. It is true, Larry, that the deeper the wounds, the more difficult it is to forgive because those wounds go deep and they don't go away so quickly. And we automatically have this sense of revenge and and we want someone else to hurt as bad as we do, but we we must learn to forgive. You know, forgiveness is, is releasing the other person from their debt of obligation to you. It's releasing them from their responsibility, if you will, of hurting you. Now, you're not approving of it. You know, a lot of people don't forgive because you think you're going to be approving of it. You think you're going to be encouraging of it, but rather you're simply forgiving as you were forgiven. And you think for a moment of all the things that you were forgiven and right away you fight, but Ed, you don't understand what they did. And I have never done something that bad. No, but your sins and mine put Jesus on the cross. How bad is that? Our life of rebellion and resistance killed an innocent man on a Roman cross in exchange for us. And because we've been forgiven so much, God has forgiven us. We automatically now extend an agape love, the love of God to forgive others. Now, forgiveness doesn't necessarily equal reconciliation. So be careful because forgiveness releases someone 
But if there's no repentance on the other side, it's going to be hard to have a relationship with them. And so that's something you want to pray for. Your part is forgiveness and openness, and then you pray for repentance on the other side. Uh, We have a pamphlet here. If you email us directly, we'll send you a link of a pamphlet that we use around the church here on forgiveness and reconciliation. So, so good. And I'd love to put it into your hands. Uh, So just email us, send us a note, and we'll send it to you. If you'd like to get your hands on this pamphlet on forgiveness, email us right now at info at calvaryaurora.org. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to bringing Bible teaching to your station every day, and we rely on the support of our listeners to do that. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we'll send you the book Radical Prayer by Manny Mill. So call 877-30-GRACE so we can get that right out to you. Let me also give you our mailing address... Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. Next time on Abounding Grace, we'll continue Pastor Ed Taylor's study of 2 Samuel. Thank you for listening today, and we'll look for you tomorrow as we open the Word together in search of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace with Ed Taylor is presented by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.